the History Channel original podcast. On July 10, 1932, a tiny advertisement ran near the bottom of the classifieds in the San Antonio Express newspaper. It read simply, Corn Chips Business for Sale, a new food product making good money. The ad was posted by a businessman from Oaxaca, Mexico, named Gustavo Olguin. He wanted to sell his corn chip business in return to Mexico. In return for $100, Olguin was offering his corn chip recipe, his hand-operated potato ricer, and 19 customer accounts. 29-year-old Charles Elmer Doolin was looking for something to save his family's own business, a struggling cafe. When he saw the ad, he pawned his mother's wedding ring to come up with the money. Doolin's $100 gamble on that classified ad would pay off as one of the most popular snack foods in the world. I'm Sean Braswell. Welcome to The Food That Built America, a podcast from the History Channel and Ozzy. Corn chips and potato chips are two of America's favorite snacks. Their earliest origins are a bit mysterious until the Great Depression, when San Antonio entrepreneur Charles Doolin made Fritos a sensation across the country. And in Atlanta, Herman Lay did the same with Lay's potato chips. Today, any American school child will tell you that these two snacks are some of the most prized items in their lunchboxes. They're so beloved that the Frito-Lay empire is now worth over $16 billion, and nine of the top 10 best-selling chips in the world are made by Frito-Lay. Restaurants in Southern California serve tortilla chips as far back as the early 1900s, but no one really knows much about the heritage of corn chips, which are something different. They're made of corn that's ground into meal with salt and water, then shaped into chips and fried. For tortilla chips, the corn is processed differently, which is why the two kinds of chips have different flavors. Did Gustavo Olguin bring corn chips with him from Mexico? Were they a family recipe? No one knows, but Doolin was on the hunt for something new and special. He was looking for some kind of a food that would be a side dish that would be served with soup or sandwiches. There's another version of the Frito story, that C.E. Doolin discovered corn chips by chance, not by answering a classified ad. And so one day he was out eating at a filling station and he saw this man, and this man was frying up um, what became Fritos, which means little fried in Spanish. And he tasted them, and he found immediately that he had finally found what he had been looking for. Doolin's investment in the Fritos business had to succeed. It was the early years of the Great Depression, and like many Americans, Doolin and his family were struggling. Libby O'Connell is a cultural historian and the author of The American Plate. He's growing up in Texas, and he's working as a young man, his parents' confectionery business. They're making candy. It's not doing that well. Doolin was the manager of the Highland Park Confectionery in San Antonio. In addition to candies and ice cream, his family sold soup and sandwiches. Business was bad, and Doolin hoped corn chips would be novel enough and tasty enough to save it. And when he started tasting these things, he found out that this is really what he wanted, and he strongly believed in it. 
And after he bought it, he would go home and his mother would experiment with a lot of the recipes. The Young Frito Company was a small-time operation. Every night, Doolin and his mother Daisy hand-rolled, pressed, and deep-fried the cornmeal dough. Adam Richmond is a television host and author of Straight Up Tasty. They would make 30-cent batches, sell them for five cents a bag, and make about a $2 profit per week. They were so popular that Doolin wanted to ramp up production, but he had trouble adapting Old Gein's techniques. Dirk Burhans is the author of Crunch, a history of the great American potato chip. So he tries to find a way to sell them to a larger audience than a mom-and-pop type of store. He first tries to see if he can use a potato ricer that you essentially use to pummel a potato with to cut these little tortilla strips, and that doesn't work. So Doolin designed a new type of machinery to make his corn chips. Doolin's father had been a steam engineer, and so he and his brother um, sort of grew up learning, and actually between uh, both he and his brother and his father, they all had a lot of different inventions, so they were always tinkering around. The family was able to increase production nearly tenfold, thanks to Doolin's new hammer press. It's almost like having a pasta machine. You make this dough with the corn, somewhat like masa, which is used to make tortillas, and it comes through the holes in the machine in ribbons, and he stood there with scissors and cut the ribbons and had them fall into the vat of hot fat. You not only had to create the product that people were going to love, you had to create the system that created that product. Dennis Prescott is a chef and author of Eat Delicious. Today, we take for granted that a lot of the technology exists that enables us, as people who are creatives, to do what we do. Restaurants exist. Restaurant equipment exists. So I can go into a restaurant and cook. They didn't have that. They had to invent the technology that allowed them to create that product so they could actualize their dream. Experimenting was in Doolin's nature. As Frito's sales increased, he constantly tried to improve the recipe. He had a kitchen next to his office. He had Bunsen burners with little metal trays on them, and he was always concocting different types of products and trying to um, have everybody taste them, whether he was at work or in his house. And he was always tinkering and always trying to invent. Doolin tried the recipe with many different types of corn. He hired farmers throughout Texas to plant different varieties until he found the taste he was looking for. He didn't have the money to have his own farms at that point in time, but he got the people who were providing him with corn to do all these experimentations with respect to hybridizing the various types of corn that there could be so he could figure out the best ones. The Doolins expanded production even further. And then later on, as demand uh, increased, they had to first move into a, a garage and then later on to a bigger building. And then eventually they had a, a factory. And by 1933, the Doolins were producing almost 100 pounds of Fritos an hour. Charles Doolin was a very down-to-earth person. When he first um, acquired the rights to Fritos, he realized that even if he had a fantastic product, it wasn't going to do him any good unless he could get them onto the shelves. So Doolin set his mind to innovating on an entirely new front. He found a product that he believed in and went on to innovate not just in how corn chips would be created and then sold, but how they were distributed. 
What Doolin didn't know was that on the East Coast, another ambitious young man was coming up with his own chip innovations that could one day make him Doolin's biggest rival. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Herman H.W. Lay was a born salesman, Alan Richer. So when he was 11 years old, he was living in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, and there was a ball field near his house. And they used to sell Pepsi uh, sodas for 10 cents a bottle. And he started selling them for 5 cents. And he made so much money, he was able to buy a bicycle and open up a bank account. He grew it to such a good business, he actually was able to hire other people and then start selling newspapers. As a young man, Lay received an athletic scholarship to Furman University to play baseball and basketball, but he dropped out after two years and began a series of odd jobs. When Lay was in his early 20s, the Great Depression hit, and he lost his sales job at a biscuit company. He had to start over. And then at one point in time, he sent out 200 resumes trying to find a job, and he got a response from a company in Atlanta called Barrett Potato Chips, which uh, marketed a potato chip company under the name of Gardner's. Like corn chips, potato chips' origins are shrouded in mystery. When Herman Lay got his offer from Gardner's, potato chips had been around for decades, maybe more than a century. Some food historians date them back to 1817, when an English doctor named William Kitchener included a recipe for potatoes fried in slices in his pioneering cookbook, The Cook's Oracle. Potato chips appear to have made a later appearance in America, in upstate New York. The first record of anything we have, like a potato chip, is from 1849 in Saratoga Springs at a place called the Loomis Lake House, where they are um, taken to customers' tables at this fancy restaurant in paper cornucopias or, or trays, uh, like the way you would get tortillas at a modern Mexican restaurant. A couple of things we do know about those early potato chips. Two cooks, brother and sister George Crum and Catherine Atkins Wicks, were among the first to prepare them at the Moon's Lake House, and customers loved them. Potato chips catch on in Saratoga Springs. They're served fresh and hot um, at all the high-end restaurants. And then they start to radiate out from there. But not very far. If you wanted to enjoy the famous Saratoga Springs potato chips, you pretty much had to eat them in Saratoga Springs. Adam Richmond. Potato chips were not the universally available, universally sold snack they are today. They were incredibly local, uh, specialized, and because they couldn't keep fresh for very long. It was just a sort of sad fact of the food stuff itself, very easy to get soggy, stale, or spoiled. It's hard to envision it now, but back then, potato chips were basically dipped out of a, uh, a barrel in a store and put in a paper bag. Think about today how when you uh, go to the movie, you get your popcorn from a glass case, 
and somebody dips something in and takes popcorn out and puts it in a bag, hands it to you. That's how potato chips were sold prior to modern packaging. Then in 1926, a nurse turned potato chip maker revolutionized packaging. A woman who um, was a pioneer in the industry, her name was Laura Scudder, and her operation was based out in Monterey, California. And she developed the idea of putting potato chips in wax bags. Scudder and her employees would iron these wax paper bags and staple them shut. So her uh, invention was one of the things that was really important for the potato chip industry. The chips only had a limited shelf life, so you couldn't necessarily um, send them far away because of the distribution logistics at that time. Soon the wax paper bag gave way to the even more effective cellophane-based bag. By the 1930s, potato chips were spreading like wildfire. That's when we see the real blossoming. We see hundreds of potato chip companies um, rising up across the country. Literally every small city or large town had its own potato chip company. So in 1932, when Herman Lay started working as a traveling salesman for the Barrett Food Company, delivering potato chips out of his car, they weren't a hard sell. They're inexpensive and they're very tasty. And again, it's a comfort food um, in a situation like the Great Depression where people are in need of something inexpensive that provides comfort. Lay quickly rose through the ranks. Eventually, he took over Barrett's Nashville warehouse as a distributor. Then, unexpectedly, an even bigger opportunity came up. Barrett died, and his company uh, you know, started to have some issues because his wife really didn't know what to do. But Herman Lay knew exactly what to do. I think the reason that Herman Lay was interested in buying Barrett's is he wanted to control his own destiny. He liked being independent. He didn't like somebody telling him what to do. Herman Lay took out a huge loan to be able to buy the entire Barrett business. Lay moved his new company to Atlanta and formed H.W. Lay and Company in 1939. He was ready to expand. Back in Texas in the early 1930s, C.E. Doolin was still fighting hard to expand his business beyond San Antonio. He also struggled with his own weight and health. Doolin um, had a history of heart problems, and so he basically became a vegetarian. Doolin ate no meat, fat, or salt. He rarely ate Fritos himself. Whenever he brought home some of the Fritos, he would always get the ones that weren't that salted and take them right off the assembly line before the, before the salter hit him and bring them home for his kids. Doolin worried about his own health, and this made him double down his efforts to expand his business. When he first started trying to sell um, Fritos, he would drive his Model A all over town, and that he would end up sleeping in there. So he always joked about the fact that I, I slept in front of the best hotels in the state of Texas. He takes these corn chips from city to city by himself from his own truck. Dirk Burhans. And there's a story, which might be apocryphal, but probably isn't, that he ran out of money on one of these trips and uh, in order to pay for gas for the next day, took a job as a restaurant cook uh, for the night. And then uh, next day he was off on his corn chip route. Just as he had tried all kinds of corn, Doolin tried all kinds of sales tactics. For example, he marketed his corn chips not just as a side dish or a snack, but as an ingredient in recipes, something that was very welcome in the Depression. 
people used to use different types of potatoes and other types of things as filler so that the dishes would last longer. And he used Fritos the same way, particularly his mother when she came up with a lot of the recipes. But then later on, you know, they came up with recipes for every meal, for breakfast, for, um, for desserts, for dinner. So everything you could imagine, the recipes are voluminous. Doolin suggested that his customers use the chips as garnish for tuna salad, breading for croquettes, even as a crust for fruitcake. And later on, to help market them, they would put the recipes on the back of the bags, and then they would also have contests. And the winners of the contest, they would end up having those recipes, and they would include them in the bag. Including the famous Frito pie, which isn't a pie at all, but beans, tomato sauce, beef, onions, and sour cream poured into a bag of Fritos. Everyone doesn't necessarily uh, see a Frito chip and think of the possibilities of adding chili and cheese. Valerie Lomas is a baker and author of Life is What You Bake It. But when you show them that and you tell them like, hey, this tastes good and look how easy it is to prepare, it's definitely going to have people who, are, who want to purchase your product in order to buy the food. And we see that now with brands all of the time. He had um, a vision of what was actually happening and how he could seize upon it and make his company more productive. This also meant reinventing the customer experience. Doolin thought a lot about exactly where to put his bags of corn chips at stores. So what happened was he had this idea and he started putting them right up near the cashier and that, and people would see them. And as they were going to pay, they'd say, well, I'll take this bag also. So he, he actually invented the uh, clip rack. With the help of Doolin's marketing innovations, the tasty Fritos soared in popularity. Soon production lines were operating in Houston and Dallas as well. As Doolin and Fritos continued to expand across the southwestern United States, another snack food brand was doing the same across the southeast. Herman Lay is a very, very aggressive, uh, innovative, imaginative businessman. Just as Doolin was expanding Fritos from a local specialty to a regional snack, Lay set his sights on expanding his new Lay's Potato Chips brand even further. Now that we have mass production in potato chips, now that we have packaging that allows you to ship and to distribute potato chips over long distances, Herman Lay sees the possibility of going from being a regional potato chip power to being something like a semi-national or grand regional potato chip business. Adam Richman. He starts his own potato chip company, then joins this potato chip company, then buys out the people that hired him, then buys out other people to become the number one name in potato chips in America. Lay expanded into new territories with what you might call a blitzkrieg approach. And so instead of just being satisfied with putting chips on a truck and leaving them at the store's warehouse. Uh, his salesmen went out, they talked to the store managers, they made friends with them, they put them on the shelves themselves. And also like Doolin, Lay pursued innovative marketing methods. Herman Lay developed the end cap, which you still see in the supermarket today, it's at the end of the aisle. And he realized that if you put an end cap in and you uh, promoted your products there, you could increase sales, I think he said, by 17%. Lay's end cap and Charles Doolin's clip rack both tapped into what we now call impulse buying. I think that most people don't realize the impact that Herman Lay 
as well as Charles Doolin had in terms of how they shop today. That when you go back and you look in the supermarket today, many, many years after both of them um, were active in their business, two of those inventions still exist today. You still see the clip racks everywhere and you still see the end caps when you go into a supermarket. The depression was finally winding down in America. Sales continued to skyrocket for both Fritos and Lay's. It seemed there was no end to their growing domination of the snack market. Then, on December 7, 1941, Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. The United States entered World War II. American businesses scrambled to support the war effort and to survive it. C.E. Doolin tried to stay ahead of the curve by marketing his corn chips to the U.S. government. Doolin wanted to try to uh, expand, and he was able to convince the military that Fritos, I think probably because it was something that would remind the troops of being at home, would be a good treat. Doolin also argued that Fritos' long shelf life and sturdy construction would make them an ideal snack food to ship abroad. So he got them to agree to send them over to some of the uh, mess halls overseas. Fritos became a major supplier to the military during the war. When he got the army contract, that it really made his company nationwide because it enabled him to build a factory in California and move out to the West. While Doolin's Fritos business was growing during the war, Herman Lay faced an existential challenge to his. Gasoline and rubber tires were rationed during the war, and Lay's depended on a fleet of trucks to deliver its products to stores. And there was an even more serious threat, Dirk Berhans. You have shortages of oil and lard and potatoes, and for a time, uh, there was talk about banning potato chips as a non-essential wartime food. Lay and other manufacturers banded together to beg the government to save their businesses from collapse. And they went to Congress and they successfully lobbied Congress to declare the potato chip an essential food group. And one of the reasons they said if there was bombing or if there was um, some type of blackout, the potato chips were a readily available source of energy that you wouldn't need to cook and they had a long life. Congress listened. And as a result of that, they were able to get more oil and they were able to get um, more tires and more gasoline rations. And they basically single-handedly saved the industry that otherwise might have gone under. And as the war continued, chips grew in popularity, thanks in part to the rationing of sugar. With fewer sweet snacks available, both Lay's and Doolin's sales jumped. As Doolin expanded in California, Herman Lay acquired five more factories across the Southeast. When the war ended, the two snack empires were poised to collide. Who would be left standing? Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Herman Lay basically has conquered the Southeast. And Doolin has pretty much conquered Texas all the way to the West Coast. Alan Richer. Both men wanted to expand their profitable enterprises after the war. The thing about only having a corn chip or a potato chip is that you've only got one product to make money from. Dirk Burhans. So the way to expand your business, if you're already selling all the corn chips, is to diversify. So who would strike first? Would C.E. Doolin start making his own potato chips? Would Herman Lay branch out into corn chips? Or would they each bring their own products into the teeth of the other man's regional market? Adam Richman. In so many of these stories, as we look at the foods that built America, very often there are two visionaries that are working in a similar field that end up on a collision course. Uh, Good Humor and Popsicle, Burger King, McDonald's, Pizza Hut and Domino's, and so on. And it usually ends up being an environment of cutthroat competition and to the victor go the spoils. And one guy wins and one guy loses. But with Lay's and Fritos, something very different happened. For one thing, Charles Doolin wasn't very interested in manufacturing potato chips. Doolin always had an apprehension about um, potatoes because he had saw how the Irish famine and the disease had uh, made them risky. And so he never really wanted to put all of his money into that particular basket of, of potatoes. And Herman Lay wasn't looking for a fight. I'm not sure whether, uh, whether Herman Lay and, and Charles Doolin really saw themselves as competitors. Because unlike those other brand visionaries, Doolin and Lay both realized there was an alternative to cutthroat competition, cooperation. Doolin had created uh, Fritos, and it was really a, um, a surefire product of, of Blockbuster, so to speak. And I think Herman Lay wanted to um, be able to grow his business. Instead of competitors, Doolin and Lay became partners. So they worked out some type of an agreement so that they, their goal was to eventually get national distribution of um, both the, the corn products and the potato products. Frito and Lay are natural partners because both of their leaders, uh, both Doolin and Lay, they're both innovators, they're both free thinkers, they're both aggressive businessmen. So it was natural that they would come together. What happened was Lay gets a product that he can help sell and Doolin basically gets um, penetration to the east. Yeah, the geographic um, territories that the respective companies um, had sort of didn't overlap that much and it made them a perfect harmony. And they form a, an agreement where everywhere that um, Fritos are sold, Lay's potato chips will be sold. Everywhere that Lay's potato chips are sold, uh, Fritos can be sold. Fritos and Lay's together just made more sense than Fritos and Lay's as competitors. I think in the case of H.W. Lay and in C.E. Doolin, you had a profound sense of mutual respect and as we say in Brooklyn, game recognizing game. And I think one visionary recognized another visionary's talent in there was the makings of arguably the biggest 
chip and snack food partnership the world has ever seen what was to become the Frito-Lay company. And not long after, a new product would reveal the virtues of that partnership. Well, during World War II, um, the military had done some research. They had bought a lot of cheese and they were trying to figure out how it could be dehydrated and how it could be stored. At the beginning of the war, the army experimented with all types of dehydrated foods, including fruits, vegetables, eggs, and cheese. But early experiments resulted in nothing more than cheese dust, which wasn't that appetizing on its own. Obviously, having a very lucrative military contract put Charles Doolin in contact with many people in the U.S. government. He found out that they had a surplus of powdered cheese, and the government was all too happy to part with it for pennies on the dollar. Now Doolin just needed to figure out what to do with it. And I think Doolin understood that there was opportunity to maybe buy some of this cheese. He sprinkled these airy, crunchy, extruded corn puffs with this powdered cheese, and the Cheeto was born. And why Cheetos? Because Doolin just liked to end his product names with an O. He thought it made them more marketable. The man behind Fritos came up with the Cheetos recipe and name, but it was Herman Lay's organizational machine that really made Cheetos a hit. C.E. Doolin can create a delicious snack, but without... H.W. Lay's business savvy, his marketing genius, and his sheer tenacity, there is no way the Cheeto could reach the nation and become the beloved snack that it is today. And the partnership between Doolin and Lay set the stage for one of the largest mergers in food industry history more than a decade later. In September 1961, the Frito Company and H.W. Lay & Company took another step beyond cooperation. The two companies merged to become Frito-Lay, Inc. Charles Doolin helped lay the groundwork for the Frito-Lay merger, but did not live to see it happen because of his heart condition. It always seemed to me that maybe he knew, and one of the reasons he wanted a merger was that he knew that he wasn't going to live that long. Doolin dies in 59. Frito and Lay are still running this two separate businesses with an informal partnership, but he had to have seen that they, a merger was gonna be likely. Frito-Lay developed many more products, including the wildly popular chips, Ruffles and Doritos. And today, Lay's are the best-selling potato chip in the world. Dennis Prescott. There's a pretty good chance that if you throw something at a chip aisle at a grocery store, it's gonna be hit a Frito-Lay product. They are crazy big. They've taken over that market. They know it. That's what they do best. Three years after the formation of Frito-Lay, it was acquired by the Pepsi-Cola company. PepsiCo Inc. is now one of the biggest conglomerates in the world. And Herman Lay continued to push to expand the Frito-Lay brand and empire. He not only was able to merge his company into Pepsi, but he had this whole other career where he became chairman of Pepsi. Today, Frito's accounts for three quarters of the corn chip market and Lay's sells over $2 billion of potato chips every year. The potato chip is the American snack. No question. It's our longest running, most reliable, best tasting, most incredible knockout snack that we have. It has a tremendous nostalgic uh, feeling because a lot of people 
remember um, the potato chip as an essential element in whatever childhood experiences they have. Or as I said before, if you were going to a picnic when you were a kid, you always had potato chips. If you're going to a Super Bowl party, you're always going to be around a lot of potato chips. So it always is associated with fun and generally happy occasions. The Fritos are always like one of my absolute favorites. I think, you know, they're, they're salty enough Toasted corn is still just one of like those classic, universally loved flavors. Chips hold a special place in my heart because they're salty and they're crunchy. For me as a chef, the best food in the world has texture. It's got that crunch factor, but it's also got salt. It's got sweet. Their chips are just the best thing in the world. They're a vehicle as well. So you can take them, you can dip them into the perfect dip. It's just a million things you can do with that one little fried piece of goodness. And it all came from the marriage of two visionary rivals. Without Charles Almodulin and H.W. Lay, there is no way the snack chip would be what it is today. Not as beloved, not as easily available, and not as varied. I think that we have the variety of flavors, textures, and different kind of edible experiences simply because of these two men. These were two men with singular visions and the gumption, intelligence, and talent to turn those visions into edible reality and eventually two of the most iconic foods that built America. On the next episode of The Food That Built America, two chocolate empires, Hershey and Mars. Milton Hershey is an American phenomenon. And in November 1900, he introduces the nation to the Hershey's Milk Chocolate Bar. It was a sweet, milky chocolate bar that won the hearts of most Americans. But Milton Hershey doesn't stop there. And so he went and invested his million dollars into building this utopian town where the workers who would support his factory would have their own housing paid for. Along with Hershey's factory, he built a town and eventually a chocolate business worth more than $30 billion today. There's someone else in, in the business as well, and his name was Frank Mars. In a Chicago diner, Frank Mars and his son Forrest embark on their own chocolate adventure. They were drinking uh, malted milkshakes, and he says to his father, boy, it sure would be great if you could put this into a candy bar. It was a remark that lit up a father's imagination. You never know where that moment of inspiration is going to strike. And eventually built a son's candy fortune to rival Hershey's, launching brands like Milky Way, Snickers, M&M, and Twix. In every way that Milton was generous, Forrest was very selfish. He wanted to build an empire. Together, Hershey and Mars were responsible for some of the world's most popular candies. They had really built America's sweet tooth between the two of them. They were um, the foundation of everything we know about the candy market today. This episode of the Food That Built America podcast was written and produced by Sean Braswell and Cecily Meza Martinez and edited and produced by Maeve McGoran. Jesse Katz, Jim Pascarella, and Mary Donahue were executive producers. Sound designed by Chris Hoff. Special thanks to McKamey Lynn and Tracy Moran. The Food That Built America was originally produced by Lucky 8 TV for the History Channel. 
please make sure to subscribe to the Food That Built America on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more great history podcasts, check out History This Week from History or Flashback from Ozzy. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.